Section 13 of The Wounded Name by D.K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 5, Part 4. 7. But even as misfortune pursued the Reverend Dr. Primrose, pressing on him a fresh calamity in every chapter, so with Dr. Primrose's readers. The day of peace to which they were both looking forward, when a mark was next morning installed again under the pear tree, was rudely broken by the advent of a letter to Madame Allard from Jérôme, her older son, announcing his immediate return, ill. And Jérôme, there was no possibility of doubt, would instantly denounce Laurent's presence to the garrison at Arbel. Oh, but not yours, surely, broke in Laurent when he heard this, thinking of Madeleine's devotion. Oh, it is true he would not find me a very profitable speculation, said Aymar dryly. But I do not choose to risk a second turning out at the hands of an imperialist. Madeleine has a plan for dispatching me to her brother-in-law at Port-Marie, about six miles away on the coast. And there's no need, however, for you to wait until I can be assured of a fresh shelter. I suggest that you hurry off at once, especially as the letter speaks of an imperial victory on the frontier. Jérôme may arrive today. Logon sat down upon the grass. We go together, he said simply. Oh, tell me now about this brother-in-law. It appeared that Michel Royer was a fisherman of some means and of royalist leanings, having been out in the war of ninety-nine. There was therefore reasonable hope that he would shelter them, and Jeannot had been sent on the farm mare with a letter to ask this favour. Laurent took it very philosophically, and there was nothing else to do, it seemed to him. The coast, too, he observed. Here is the finger of Providence. Was I not talking of returning by sea? But he could see that Aymar was not finding philosophy so easy. Who would, as weak as he? He lay back, frowning, looking very tired. Yes, he said, listlessly. You might find it convenient. Oh, but you, said Laurent. It is not good for you to be bundled about like this, and, moreover, it is not necessary. You ought to go home now to be nursed. You need so much care still. And Pogmarie is in exactly the opposite direction from Cécigne, is it not? Aymar shut his eyes. Yes, he answered, his voice grating a little. It is, but it may be very convenient for me also to be on the coast. When I'm a little stronger, I shall very likely leave France altogether. Logon stared at him, thunderstruck. The clean-cut, sensible mouth was set in a line that was half resolution, half pain. Oh, God in heaven! What did he mean by that? As he tried in one and in the same mental process to arrive at his inner meaning and to ward it off from him, the face, the chair, the background all rocked for a second before his sight. Oh, leave France altogether, he repeated, when he could find his voice. Aymar opened his eyes again, but he did not look at him. Yes, he said. Then he added, perhaps. And on that Madeleine, 
sniffing audibly, came hurrying over the grass in her heelless shoes. 8. It was evening, saffron and sea green. Jeannot had come back from Port Marie with a letter. Michel Royer would receive the two gentlemen, but they must not arrive till dark, and he would meet them at the turning under the chestnuts, half a mile out of the village. I shall very likely leave France altogether. Whatever Laurent said or did in that wind-blown, lovely, interminable day of waiting had those words sounding through it. Surely, though Aymar might feel, as he had said, and that he was unable to clear himself, and surely, with a consciousness of innocence to sustain him, he might try, or, at any rate, remain and mutely endure till that very endurance should speak for him. Instead of that, Loiseleur, the incarnation of courage and daring, was contemplating running away. And that, surely, could only mean one thing. The ramrod, with its attendant heroism and horror, had altered nothing. Facts were too hard to be melted in the crucible of emotion. Laurent began to see that now. And, numb with misery, he fought in the little garden plot with a spectre which yesterday, in the same place, he had thanked God was laid forever. At last it was dusk, and they could start. That Amag's burnt arm should run no risk of contact with anything, they put him on the right hand of the one long seat. Laurent sat next to him, and Jeannot drove from the left. And very soon Madeleine and her tearful farewells and the low buildings of La Boussin were gone. Heavy clouds were lumbering up over what had been the sunset. Aymar hardly answered anything that was said to him, and, indeed, conversation was difficult, for the idiot boy's driving was rudimentary. The farm cart, though light, springless, and the roads which they had to take abominable. One succession of deep ruts, in and out of which they continuously rolled and jolted. About halfway it began to rain. Laurent silently arranged the piece of sacking provided round his friend's shoulders, and as they sat there, with bent heads, holding their rough cape round them, it seemed to him that they were rather a sorry pair of outcasts. Yet it might have been amusing and venturous, this odyssey. And perhaps that was what Loiselard was feeling so intensely. But if that horrible thing should be true, he had made himself the outcast. And more than once Laurent's thought went back to that drive in England, rather more than a year ago, when he hardly knew him, and was so elated at taking home a lion. He remembered thinking afterwards that he had been too garrulous, and that his guest, in consequence, had withdrawn himself a little. Now Loiselag was infinitely farther away than when he had been a stranger, and Laurent himself had never had less heart for converse. At last they came to the sharp turn of the road, where they were to meet Royer. But even in the gloom under the trees, it was apparent that there was no one there. Aymar climbed wearily down, remarking that they were perhaps too punctual, and the idiot boy refusing to wait on events, but driving off again, the two fugitives were left stranded in the semi-darkness to await their host. 
The rain, however, had stopped. This begins not to be amusing, remarked Aimac after a few minutes, and indeed there was no amusement in his voice. Oh, Dieu, how tired I am. He had sat down on a log that lay in the long wet grass, close to a broken down gate which had once closed the entrance to a little lane, and against this gate he now leant back. Overhead, the chestnut leaves were gently dripping. I'll go along the road a little and see if I can meet the man, said Laurent. In a few moments he came striding back, rather angry. Aymar, oh, where are you? A confoundedly annoying thing has happened. I met Royer in the road, there, and he says he has changed his mind. Oh, it is too risky, he thinks, to take us into his house in the village, but he says that just along the coast to our left there is a smuggler's cave, the Panier which we can easily reach, and which is quite habitable. He will show us the way, and he's bringing some provisions with him. He will be here himself in a minute or two. Aymar, on his log in the dusk, was silent for a couple of seconds, and then he said, well, If this is a joke, it is a damnably bad one. Oh, it is not a joke. I'm far too much annoyed to jest. But, of course, we cannot force the man to take us in. Well, I, declared Loiseleur, am not going to set out at this time of night for a cave along the coast. But you cannot spend the night here by the side of the road, cried Laurent. Why not? inquired his friend. My dear Aimag, after that fever, itself the result of a night in the open. I assure you, replied Aimag, dropping his head onto his hand, and that I don't care if I get a hundred fevers. I'm not going any farther. I can't. Logon stood looking down at him in dismay. Loiseleur's courage failing him at last. What on earth was he to do? Let us go to the inn at Port-Marie, then, if there is one, and risk it, suggested he in some desperation. You mean that you would run the risk for my sake? I've already been told that I allow you to carry your devotion too far. No, go to your cave by yourself. I will find it in the morning, and perhaps. I wish Monsieur Pecolet had minded his own business, said Laurent sharply. Oh, come on, Aimard. I tell you that I'm going no farther. Oh, leave me, for God's sake. Oh, don't be absurd. How can you imagine that I should do such a thing? Imag made a dimly seen gesture. Oh, it's all I ask. Leave me. Leave me. You would, if you knew. And, as by a fleet arrow, Laurent was transfixed by annoyance. Oh, if only he did know, instead of having to listen to these eternal hints and innuendos. But till I know, he reposted sharply. Loiseleur, for God's sake, be a man. Here's my arm. Aymar pulled himself instantly to his feet. No, thanks. Which is the way? It was too dark to see his face, but his tone showed only too clearly the effect of this adjuration. Even as he asked the question, Michel Royer had come up. Laurent, keeping down something in his own breast, at once miserable and fierce, drew the fisherman a little aside and whispered to him.
My friend is ill. He may want assistance. Oh, but don't touch his right arm. Oh, give me half of what you're carrying. The transfer was made. This is the way, gentlemen, said the vague figure, in a hoarse voice which seemed to have known many tempests, and led off past the broken gate and down the very track by whose entrance Aymar had been sitting. Aymar followed, without a glance at his friend, and that friend brought up the rear, in a perfect daze of misery, irritation, and anxiety. 9. Some three quarters of an hour afterwards, Laurent stood, lantern in hand, in the smuggler's cave, the panier, and looked remorsefully down at Aymar, lying at his feet on the rough bed of sailcloth and seaweed, in the profound slumber of exhaustion. His own burst of irritation had subsided now, and the sight of that bandaged arm made him doubly ashamed of it, though as for having forced Aymar, as he had, to use the last shred of his strength, he did not see what else he could have done. But at least it was he himself, and not Royer, who had, when they reached their goal, guided Loiseleur, blind with fatigue as he was, to this couch, on which he had dropped like a log, not to move since. Royer had gone, promising to come again tomorrow. And the panier, as far as Laurent could see by lantern light, seemed wonderfully dry and spacious, and there was a sufficiency of food and coverings. So there was nothing to do but go to sleep, and in sleep he could forget the cruel rebirth which had taken place in his mind. And perhaps in sleep it would even go from him again. He lay down as quietly as possible by Loiseleur and pulled a little of the covering over himself. But it was soon obvious to him that he was not going to sleep. He was far too conscious of Aymar's proximity. Too conscious that his theory about Aymar was crumbling to pieces, as Aymar had foretold. Yet it was he himself who felt the traitor. How could he bear to lie there, almost touching that arm, martyred for him, and realize, as he did at length, and that that martyrdom could not change the past. It still was, if you knew. It still was that Loiseleur, for all his courage and endurance, quailed before the thought of a future in his own country. Why? 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 His thoughts buzzed and stung like flies. And now the recurrent plunge of the tide, the sound that none can stay, began to torment him. Every time the waves splashed outside, and they seemed to reiterate something monotonous and final, some message charged with ruin and farewell. And when Aymar, who had lain beside him all the time like a man drugged or dead, stirred, and in stirring touched him, it was more than Laurent could bear. He slipped from under the covering, and groped his way across the cave to its mouth. It was a cloudy night. The sea looked dull, not sinister, not violent, and just a dimly seen expanse of moving mud. There was no moon visible, and not a star. It was like his own thoughts. Logon sat down on a keg at the mouth of the cave, 
and gave himself over to the contemplation of these. They were far more bitter than on that night at La Boussin, when the veil of self-deception had first been rent, more bitter even than in that hot vigil on the roof, because of the stage of revulsion and remorse which lay between, and fruitlessly. For his reason coldly said to him, his undoubted affection for you, his more than undoubted strength of will, may have carried him for your sake through an act of heroism, and yet that does not prove that he could not have done the other thing. And it was in vain that his heart cried out, Yes, it does, it does, it does, because reason then retorted. Why, then, has he not told you everything, as he said that day at Agbel he wished he had? Why did he not tell you yesterday, under the pear tree? Oh, evidently he will not, until you ask him. But that Laurent would never do now. He would leave him, but he would never ask him for his secret. He could not abandon him yet, but when Aimag was well enough, he would say that he must go back to Vendée, as Aimag had urged him, and thus their parting would have no special significance about it. All the same, he would be tearing him out of his heart forever, and deliberately slaying and burying the friendship which had come to mean so immeasurably much to him, and condemning himself to go through the rest of his life not knowing the real truth. He covered his face with his hands, and pictures of the bright and dishonored head rose constantly before him. A mark that night in Devonshire, under his roof, looking at him with that quiet and immensely attractive smile. A mark in the great salon at the Hôtel de Saint-Severin, with the king talking to him, the magnet for every gaze. A mark at Arbel, helpless, suffering, despised, and all the dearer for it, then. Amag wringing out his wet locks by the swirling river in which he had just risked his life. For him. And he wondered if he would always see that picture gallery when they had parted, and he heard his name mentioned with loathing. His friend, his friend, who could not have done the thing they said he had, even though his own men believed it and had wreaked vengeance on him even though he, Laurent, his champion of champions, was at last brought to saying so, too. Was he indeed saying that, saying it with the slow, hot tears running down against his fingers? And the sea was saying it relentlessly. He took away his hands and brushed off the moisture, and found that he must have been there much longer than he knew, for it was light outside, with a cold and heartless light, and from the port a sail was stealing out, as a max might, one day. And with that, out of the darkness still prevalent within the cave, there came a mag's voice, no more than a little drowsy. What are you doing over there, Laurent? Did I disgust you so with my, my want of manhood, and that you will not share the same bed with me, Laurent jumped. He had no idea that Aimag was awake, nor that he himself was visible. In spite of the words, the tone was not sarcastic. 
It merely held a sort of sad amusement. I I found I couldn't sleep, he stammered hoarsely. You won't sleep sitting on that barrel. Almost unconsciously, Logon got up and sat down on the sand, putting his shoulders against the rock. It is dawn, he murmured. He heard a mag sigh. Who is your arm hurting you? Now, thanks. Logon, come back to bed. Logon dug his fingers into the sand. I was abominably rude to you this evening, he said with a gulp. It was, I dare say, deserved. At any rate, you succeeded in getting me here. Well, go to sleep again, murmured Laurent. I will, if you will tell me why you're sitting out there. There was a long pause, filled by the sea. Laurent had just made up his mind to one course of action, and now, suddenly, he was weighing the opposite. Why not? It was more honest, fairer to him. There was so much in the voice, though it was even and unemotional, that it tore his very heart. I'm sitting here, he said at last, slowly, because I was thinking about you. Because the last few days I could not help. He leant forward, clenched his hands between his knees, and said in a rush, A mag, what did you say to Monsieur Picolet that night? In the darkness, Aimag observed quietly. It is that, then. I thought so. God knows what I said. At any rate, Monsieur Picolet did not like it. He gave a desolate little laugh. Am I responsible to you, also? Oh, I never meant to ask you, said Laurent, fighting down his misery. You know what I've always thought about it all. And after that ramrod, too. A sound like a sob escaped him. You must tell me something, Aymar. I'm, I'm too bewildered to go on in the dark any longer. Neither sound nor movement came from the other end of the cave. Only outside, the sea came up twice, saluted the sand, and withdrew. Then Aymar spoke. Yes, I must do it. I ought to have done it long ago. I know it. Only, well, you will know soon enough why I did not. Do you want me to tell you the story now? Good God, no, said Laurent, raising his head. Tomorrow. And then all his deep affection and a certain cold dread, warring together, swept over him. He sprang to his feet, and, going uncertainly over to him, dropped on his knees beside him. Or never, Aimag, if you choose. Let it be never, then. I have no right. No right. If ever in the world a man had a right, you ought not to have had to ask. Or as you have asked, a suspicion of hardness crept into his voice. You shall have it, every word, tomorrow. Or, rather, today. What time is it? Logon struck a light and looked at his watch and had for his pains a little picture of his friend lying there with his bandaged arm, 
challenged at last, on the heels of illness and suffering and extreme fatigue. The tinder must have shown the wretchedness on his own face, for Aimag put out his left hand a little and said, and very gently, Why are you reproaching yourself, Laurent? You have no cause, and no shadow of cause. And as you do not yet know how much I have, you could still lie down here again, for a little. And Laurent came instantly. He tried to seize the extended hand as he lay down, but it evaded him, and he lay there on his face, motionless, dreading the day. But the traitor's thoughts were stilled. 10. Despite its spiritless dawn, it was a fine morning, with a breeze and circling gulls. Not at all a morning on which to be executed, for that had been Laurent's sensation on rising. Only he was not sure now which was the victim and which the executioner. The two of them had just finished breakfast outside the cave. Laurent felt himself far more the outwardly nervous, and when Aimag became absolutely silent, he grew very nervous indeed, thinking that the next moment, or the next, would certainly hear him begin. But Aimag, perhaps, was experiencing a shrinking from that moment more acute still, for when Laurent, unable to bear the tension any longer, scrambled to his feet and picked up the loaf and the empty bowls, Aimag, too, got up, and without a word to him, walked down towards the sea. He stood there with his head bent, and Laurent remembered once more how he had seen him, first in the sunshine, by moving water. He turned and went into the cave. He had barely put away the loaf when Aimag's figure darkened the entrance. I will tell you what you want to know now, he said. It shall be as short as I can make it, but even at that it will take a little time, if you are to hear everything. Shall I come outside? asked Laurent, not looking at him. No, I can tell you better in here, if you will allow me. The sea is disturbing, louder than that salmon river of yours. He looked round for a seat and finally sat down on the heap of seaweed. Then he, too, had been thinking of their first meeting. Logon fetched for himself the keg he had sat on during the night. I must say again, resumed Aimag after a moment, that I am fully aware you ought never to have had to ask for this. It was owed you on every count. But at Arbel, I and put it off from day to day. When I was turned out, there was not time. And afterwards, at Madeleine's, when I had at least one excellent opportunity, I... Well, never mind why I did not take it. The only good excuse I have for my silence is that to tell you the story properly, I must have told you something rather intimate. And I did not know you very well at first. My other excuse is not so good. He paused and played for a moment with the earring of the sail near his left hand. The other excuse is merely my own cowardice. I thought that when you knew, you would... You see how Monsieur Perlet took it. 
But in Monsieur Pegolet's case, you were wandering, and whatever you said, began Logon, feeling a chill at the heart. Yes, I probably made him think it was worse than it was. He raised his head and smiled, a little drawn smile. But I'm quite clear-headed now, and you will not like what I'm going to tell you, Logon. Oh, please don't interrupt me, or I shall not be able to tell you at all. Because I know that you've thought, until quite recently, that I was shielding someone. For the first time, his voice betrayed real difficulty. And I suppose I was. I was shielding myself. As it came out, he looked straight at his hearer. But Logon, as though he had been the accused, could not meet his eyes. He put his hand over his own, his elbow on his knees. Go on, he said, all but inaudibly. He had turned very pale. Aymar went on. End of section 13